Welcome to Writing It, a podcast by Ed Adams. The Triangle, episode 12. Dirty Money, Here's How to Clean It, a novel by Ed Adams. Brophy visits London. Amelia Brophy had arrived in London the previous evening. The trip from Cannes across the border into Italy had been uneventful. The Hummer had been an exciting driving experience, and Brophy, while keeping professional, had been amused at the civilian version of what was an all-American military machine. Amelia had used Hummers in the past, Humvees in military slang, but this version was quite different with its plush seating and a 12-channel Bose stereo system. She knew it could still drive over another car if things got tough, or maybe push down a wall without losing its stride, but she had just got used to it as an expensive and very robust taxi to get to Genoa. She had driven it to the long-stay car park, noted the bay number, and would inform the company a day before the rental ran out. Her main objective in the short term was to escape general detection from the Russians as she made her way back to the United Kingdom. In the event, she was able to walk from the car park to the small airport at Christopher Columbus Airport and select a direct flight with a lesser-known carrier back to London's Gatwick Airport. By evening, she had arrived, travelling light. She booked a room at the Gatwick Hilton, which was built right on the airport campus. From here, using the internet, she was able to accurately identify the location of Jake's flat and map out the surrounding area. Like the last victim at the gallery, this would be silent, fast knife work, and she would be in position from early morning in two days' time to do this. Tomorrow was stakeout, and the next day was execution. In the morning, she had caught the Gatwick Express to Victoria, and then caught a taxi to the general area of Jake's flat. Amelia had decided that if a direct opportunity appeared during the day, she would end it immediately. Otherwise, she would plan for a 2 or 3 a.m. entry to Jake's flat. She rounded the corner into Jake's Road. Immediately, she noticed a police car, then a second, a police van, a fire engine and an ambulance. They were spread all over the road and there was a crackle from police radios. Amelia looked along the road, certain this was related to her mission, but convinced that no one would know of her current plans. She started walking along the road, already creating her excuse to need to be at the shopping centre at the far end. A policeman walked slowly towards her. I'm sorry, madam, I need to ask you to use another road this morning. This way is blocked. You don't know the people in the three houses over there on the left, do you? Amelia shook her head. I'm just trying to get to the shop, she replied. You better go back to the corner and take the next road, then, the policeman replied. We will be here a while. What happened? she asked. You know I can't answer that, replied the policeman. Please take another route this morning. Amelia looked towards the central house taped by the police. She noted the coroner, the fireman, the large number of police, and that several had bulletproof jackets. She couldn't see any police weapons, but she knew there must be plenty in the close vicinity. Okay, she responded and started to turn. Then she noticed the red Vauxhall, unlocked, wires exposed by the steering wheel, wired as a precaution, a safety car. Not cool, she mused. She turned back to the corner of the street and into another road leading towards the shopping centre. As she walked, she processed the information. A messy hit on Jake's flat, the very place he was targeting, and less than two days after his discussions with the Russians. A botched and messy hit, a broken-in and wired escape vehicle. Professional attention to detail, but badly executed hit, drawing a lot of attention. This could only be the Russians unsophisticated but very pragmatic. 
She decided it was the Russians, probably the same ones she'd met in Cannes, taking the short route to Jake. But why? It was her job. This could only mean one thing. The thing Amelia expected had happened. They'd monitored for her to leave the hotel, and when she didn't, they'd tried to locate her, found her room, and tried to kill her. The way she'd rigged the bed and the feathers had created enough confusion to mean the assassins had not checked, but now believed her dead and the need to finish the job with Jake themselves. She wondered if Jake had been killed. She had seen the coroner and the ambulance, but it was too risky to go back to check any further. Amelia was about to disappear and adopt a new name. This had got very personal with the Russians. Eurostar. Claire and Bixie were enjoying the train experience. There was something important about travelling to Paris on the Eurostar. Many of the passengers looked like suited business people on their way to meetings, flashing laptops, mobile phones and all types of communication device. Bixie and Claire looked more like backpackers on the first stage of a long journey. They had been using their credit cards for ticketing and hotel bookings, and the ever-practical Claire had even told the credit card company she would be abroad to prevent the card being stopped unexpectedly. The miles and then kilometres sped by in a blur. Soon they were in Paris, Gare du Nord, and now they needed to cross Paris to the train station for Zurich. They used a taxi for speed and were soon in the new station. A fleeting glimpse of the romantic city and they were again in the slight grime of a major train station, walking towards a sleek TGV which would take them to Zurich. In fact, the train looked more like an aeroplane, and as they stepped into the second piece of luxury transportation, they both had to remind themselves that this was a mission and not a vacation. Manners had been watching the cluster of dots on his surveillance system. The grain-sized transmitters were low power, and while ideally suited to monitoring movements around London, they limited traceability to within the Greater London area, bored by the ellipse of London's peripheral M25 motorway. Bixit and Claire slid out of London on the Eurostar. Other than the knowledge that they were on this train, Manners had no other way to track them across Paris. Manners could pinpoint a location when the transmitter dots had all paused at an address in Finsbury Park. With four transmitters, there was an accurate fix, Stapleton Hall Road, and an actual street number. From Google Maps, it was a large house converted into flats. Manners was getting organised to pay a visit. This time he would take a professional team rather than the burglars that he had used the first time to approach Jake's flat. Manners was convinced that this address held the clue to the whereabouts of Jake and probably to the information he required. The travel of the two he'd met in the Marriott was less impressive than getting to the coded data that was the basis for the reconstruction of the Triangle network. From his hotel near Park Lane, Fredrickson was also considering how to derive the code. He had the recording on the memory stick from Manners, and sure enough, within this was an interview exchange which seemed to describe a code that Fredrickson knew that was supposed to lead to the blue flame, but that the code number in the version supplied by Manners had an error. Fredrickson's attempt to second-guess the missing code was too difficult. All he had found was a long list of addresses which looked like a range of churches in the northeast of London. Fredrickson paused to reconsider this. There was something wrong. Perhaps the recording had been manipulated. He switched to a sound analyzer on his computer. He scrolled through the recordings. The wave patterns showed some sudden changes as if they had been cut. This recording was a fake. Manners had doctored it. Fredrickson had no idea this manipulation was done out of necessity rather than as a malice. 
Fredrickson made a mental note of this related to Manners' future. He reached into his hand luggage and pulled out a pair of headphones. He plugged them in and re-listened to the last part of the recording. He could hear the almost imperceptible clicks as the sound had been cut and restarted. Fredrickson now decided to listen to the full recording on headphones to check for any other useful information or clues. For the first time he listened to the first part when Jake had been waiting for Darren Collins. Fredrickson used software like that which Bigsy had used to boost the quality of the recording between Collins, the Arabs and Manners. It gives you wings. Zurich, Switzerland. A pretty 10th century town with a picturesque centre and beautiful views of the adjacent lake. Bigsy and Claire looked at the evidence of its origins. Of the wooden bridges decorated with flowers spanning parts of the central area, with history going back to the Middle Ages. In the distance they could see the outline of mountains, and they knew definitively they were in a foreign country. For now they needed accommodation, and quickly found a Sofitel hotel close to the centre. They awkwardly discussed sharing a room, but then decided to give one another space. Their credit cards were already quite dented, so decisions now would hardly make a profound difference. In the event, the Sofitel was inexpensive, and they were both tired from the stress and travel of the day. After a brief meal in a nearby chain restaurant, they both collapsed for the night, ready to start fresh the following day, in pursuit of the apartment listed on the website. While Claire and Bigsy settled for the night, back in London, Fredrickson was deep in the analysis of the original recording provided by Manners. He filtered and boosted the audio in the same way that Bigsy had achieved a day or so earlier. Now Manners could hear most of the conversation between the Arabs and Darren Collins, although it dawned upon him that sections were skipping, which now sounded as if it was from a hardware fault. He also knew that Collins had continued the follow-up conversation with Jake Lambers, so if Jake Lambers could be found, it provided the best chance to locate the missing information. Fredrickson had no sophistication at his disposal to find Jake Lambers. Instead, he looked for London phone directory inquiries on the internet and typed in Lambers, J. There was just one. He could not believe his luck. He wrote down the address. Manners was already planning his move on the located flat. He didn't know it was Biggs's flat. Manners suspected that Jake and the needed information would be together at this address. He knew that the sleek woman and the large messy looking guy had moved away and that he would now have access to the flat and maybe Jake. He was using a professional outfit for this entry. The two guys he had used at short notice for the previous break-in had damaged the stolen laptop even when stealing it from empty premises. This time he had personally selected a team. Americans, ex-military, used to working together, fast, professional and silent. Manners was in the right communities for this and could get people who would work for cash and not ask questions. Afterwards they would melt away and could be relied upon for their discretion. The team he assembled for this was probably overpowered for the situation. He was using three men and himself as the control. Four military into one unarmed, surprised civilian should be simple. They actually wanted the information, not Jake, so the objective had to be carefully prescribed to the team. They planned an early morning entry to the flat, probably three in the morning when the occupants would be sleeping. They were going to use a surround pattern. Two through front access, one was covering back and a control across the road. This provided fast access, minimised escape routes and provided consolidation when they needed to search. 
Two of the men would carry tasers, all three would have smoke canisters, and one would also carry a semi-automatic weapon. They would all wear daytime clothing with layers, so if they needed to change identity, it would be easy to discard a layer. With their basic preparation, they collected the statutory white van which would form the primary transport. They also had another bland-looking Ford hatchback which they pre-parked in the area. This was a B-car, only to be used in an emergency. It had been put in position the day before the operation. Two streets away were three pedal cycles chained to railings as a third backup. At one o'clock in the morning, the group of four were in the van. Manus and two of the men sat in the back. The fourth man drove. As they parked by Biggs's flat, they pulled on balaclava hats. These were less to act as a disguise, but more to intimidate. They synchronised watches, waited until seven minutes to two, and then left the van to take up positions. Manners, acting in control, moved up to the van's driving seat. Inside Biggs's flat, Jake was not asleep. Earlier in the evening, he had found a spare box of Red Bull caffeinated drinks, which Biggsy had stored on top of a cupboard. He vaguely recollected the poker evening about two weeks ago when they'd slightly overbought all of the drink, and despite the attempts to finish everything, by the next morning they'd all been sprawled around Biggs's flat. Jake had been trying to work out the possibilities of how the money laundering process operated. He supposed that the illicit activities could be from drugs, people trafficking, illegal gambling and other large-scale vices. The money could be flushed through casinos, simply lose it all and let the casino clean it up. But if there were significant enough quantities, even the casino route could become labour-intensive. Having a process where the money was laundered through legitimate shell companies would make sense. He found a large pack of flip chart paper and some big marker pens and started to draw the routing of the money. It did indeed look like a triangle of corruption. It was around 2am, but Jake didn't feel tired. In fact, the drinks had been giving him a real buzz to stay active. He decided to create a war room about what had been happening, as he'd seen in the movies. It was this or go stir-crazy. Wide with the excess caffeine, he decided that the sticky chewing gum-like material known as blue tack was needed to stick the papers onto the wall. He flicked through Biggs's kitchen drawers and the place where Biggs's computers were stacked, but there was nothing suitable. Rick, thought Jake. Rick, the estate agent. Estate agents are organised. He will have blue tack. Jake subconsciously recognised that this was a bizarre and somewhat illogical quest at two in the morning. He wondered if the drink was bringing out a latent obsessive-compulsive disorder. He wandered back to the kitchen drawer and fiddled about at the back. A keyring said Foxton's. It was Rick's spare keyring. Rick and Bigsy had swapped spare keyrings so that if either was locked out, they could borrow the spare sets to get back into their respective flats. Jake remembered that Rick was away partying because the idea of paying a call at two in the morning was beyond the normal description of neighbourly. He opened Bigsy's door, leaving it ajar as he went into Rick's. The key worked first time. He called Rick, just in case, but there was no reply. He switched on the light and then immediately switched it off again. He realised he'd been working in semi-darkness for the last hour and that was about all his eyes could take. The light from the hallway was plenty enough. He looked around. He had visited Rick's before, a remarkably neat and well-organised flat. In the general dimness, he walked to Rick's small office area and there, in a small box, was a selection of office supplies. A stapler, marker pens, erasers, 
computer CDs and sure enough a pack of blue tack more than that it was a pack of unused blue tack at that precise moment he heard a huge bang this was from the outside door and made him wonder what was happening the sound was the entry of the two intruders to the front of the house he could see they were going directly towards Biggs's room Jake kept a low profile the noise he heard sounded as if it came from people who meant business it could be that someone had now located him and was getting tough he could see enough through the small gap in Jake's door the intruders noticed Biggs's open door and moved straight in as they walked into the entrance of Biggs's he could see that they had noticed the spread of IT equipment on Biggs's desktop he noticed the third intruder making his way to Biggs's room they looked as if they were quickly checking through the flat but there was no one present just piles of paper and general mess the intruders would have their work cut out compared with an average person's flat Biggs's had an exceptional amount of equipment there were several pc towers two laptops spare disk drives and cd burners jake decided his best option was to leave quietly whilst the americans were in the flat he slipped quietly from rick's room carrying rick's spare foxton key next to the flat key he noticed another one it said mini on it thank you he thought it was the key to rick's estate agent's mini the one with the fancy paint job and the racing number on the side as he left the flat he crept quietly down the steps then he plinked the key on the fob and a reassuring double blip sound came from his left it was the mini which now showed its tail lights flashing and he sighed as he walked quickly towards it without looking back he opened the driver's door put the key into the ignition turned it and then in a few seconds was maneuvering the car out of the parked row of vehicles past a double parked white van Manor saw the car drive past, noted the registration number and waited calmly as the three Americans continued to search through the equipment in Biggs's flat. A few minutes later, the first emerged. There is a lot of equipment, he called. Well, we have a lot of van, responded Manners. He knew that the equipment would be a faster way to the information and therefore more valuable than Jake. If he needed to do something further with Jake, this could be saved for another day. Twenty minutes later, the equipment was on the van, and they moved away, driving through London to a small lock-up railway arch just south of the River Thames and near to Blackfriars. They would need to sift a lot of data now to find the missing recording. Manners also knew the likelihood was that the recording would be easy to locate simply by date. (laughs) 